Today we are discussing threats against a member of parliament in the United Kingdom and his decision to stand down at the next election. Mike Freer is a member of parliament at the House of Commons and Minister Ministry at Department for Justice. He presents an area with a large Jewish population and has been an outspoken, outspoken defender of Israel. As this will be a special abbreviated interview, let's jump right in. Um, welcome, Mike and Phyllis, please ask the first question. Yes. Could you please describe, Mike, the death threats and abuse that you have been personally receiving since October 7th? Well, it's difficult. Since October 7th, um, I can't say there's been a specific death threat since October 7th. The, uh, if you like, the uh, threats of violence stretch back to 2011 uh, and then more recently in um, 2021. Um, what happened um, most recently was the arson attack on my office in Finchley. But what has happened since the 7th of uh, October is the level of debate and the tone of the emails has become increasingly intolerant. There is no nuance um, to the issues and there's no ability to have a rational discussion. Um, it is incredibly polarized, incredibly black and white. And what we've seen is that we've seen colleagues, so certainly even last night, one of my colleagues had a crowd of 70 people demonstrating outside his home um, and they were loud and uh, very, very well, intimidating outside his home um, all over the Gaza issue and Palestine. And we've seen that up and down the country. Um, certainly for me, um, it is simply the inbox um, and that has become difficult to have any nuanced conversation about the future of the two-state solution or Israel's ability to defend itself. So that is what's changed, that level of uh, if you like, vociferous intolerance in the inbox and some colleagues having quite uh, intimidating demonstrations outside their offices and outside their homes. So there is a, a pressure on you and your colleagues um, about your opinion um, and, and point of view about Gaza and Israel. Yeah. Um, yeah. So could you tell us more about your decision to step down? Okay. Can I just, just before I do that, just reassure people that MPs are rather stubborn in that the more we uh, people try and shout us down, or try to intimidate us into silence, the more we tend to dig our heels in. Um, so it tends to be counterproductive um, you know, in terms of MPs uh, won't be silenced. Um, but the decision to step down, I mean, after the guy called Ali Habibi Ali, um, went, he's the guy that killed David Amos in a rather frenzied knife attack. After the arrest, it turns out that he'd come to Finchley uh, before that, um, to do several recce's and then came on the 17th of September 21 uh, when I was scheduled to have an advice, what we call advice surgery, where we see residents. Um, but by pure fluke, I changed my plans and I was in Westminster rather than Finchley, but he'd come with the intention um, to hurt me. After that, there'd been considerable increase in security at my home and office. And my husband, Angelo, had become increasingly anxious about my safety. Um, but we'd kind of agreed, and then obviously I, I went on to, uh, you know, uh, calm things down. But after the arson attack on Christmas Eve, uh, and we're still quite, not quite clear what the exact motives are, because the 
The two people have been arrested. They're in prison awaiting trial, but they've not said anything. So we don't know what their motives are yet. But after the arson attack, Angela said to me, that's it, you're done. I said, I'm not prepared to keep worrying about you, seeing you in some events with a stab vest, not you know, wondering whether you're going to be able to, you're safe walking home from the tube. And normally these things calm down, you have more rational conversations, but unfortunately after the arson attack, I'm afraid there was no talking him around. And so rather reluctantly, um, I took the decision to uh, step down at the next general election. So it's, it's um, because of the personal risk, uh, risking your life basically, um, that's yeah. you and your, your husband or partner uh, decided not to be uh, running in the next elections. Yeah, I mean, members of parliament to a degree sign up for, you know, a risk. Um, I'm not sure we sign up to the uh, exact risk that we're now facing. Um, but our partners, husbands, wives, wider family don't sign up for it. And certainly the level of anxiety that I've seen um, Angela have to cope with, uh, it does weigh heavily. I mean, after I made the decision, there was uh, a knife attack in Golders Green. Uh, Angela very quickly said, see, you know, it only takes one. Uh, and that's very much the argument. The organised groups are slightly easier to deal with because they tend to be monitored by the police and the security services, particularly the more dangerous ones. But it's the random individuals that we have to worry about, whether they've got mental health issues or uh, Ali Habibi Ali, uh, the knife man, um, he was radicalised in his bedroom. They're the hard ones to spot because, of course, they're not necessarily part of groups. They're not visible. They're being radicalised online, and that's much more difficult to spot. However sophisticated the algorithms are, spotting what people are searching for, sometimes people get radicalised under the radar, and they're the dangerous yes. ones. The, the, these perpetrators, these terrorists, are, are, are often called lone wolves. Yes, yeah. And get... They can get radicalized, as you said, online. Sometimes also uh, by by some uh, scout or coach from uh, from an existing uh, yeah. radical uh, Islamic group. Um, but it's hard to find out um, mm. beforehand. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and isn't isn't the British Parliament uh, protecting you? Yes. Um, but certain certain roles in government have twenty four hour, you know, police security. You know, they have armoured vehicles like the prime minister. Uh, but uh, you know, normal members of parliament, we have significant security depend on our risk assessment. So after the Ali Habibi Ali attack or threatened attack, my home was basically turned into a fortress. Um, my office is has uh, had you know significant security measures installed, um, and you take sensible precautions when you're doing an event that is where people know in advance you know if i'm what we call a supermarket so do we stand in the door of our supermarkets and let people just come and talk to us they tend to get advertised in advance or where we do an advice fair where you invite 300 500 local residents to come in and talk to organizations again that's the those known events i wear a stamp vest but unless you're going to give a member upon a government car 24 hours a day and close protection 24 hours a day. We have to lead normal lives when we go to the supermarket or when we walk to the tube or, you know, last night I went to the cinema. You know, I don't expect to have to have 24 hour security when I'm just doing normal domestic life. Um, 
So Parliament is taking steps to provide security, but there's no such thing as 100% security unless you are, you know, the Foreign Secretary, the Prime Minister. So we have to take sensible measures, but we are not, uh, we're not prisoners. Let's, in our time, go to give us your perspective on this rise of anti-Semitism in the UK. Um, well, of course, as we all know, it is the oldest hatred, so it's never fully gone away. It morphs, and certainly it had historically morphed most recently into um, anti-Israel sentiment because people realised being anti-Semitic was not acceptable. Then, of course, came along Jeremy Corbyn, the, uh, the leader of the, uh, the Labour Party, who, if you like, took out the cork and uh, allowed anti-Semitism to become almost normalised in parts of society. Uh, and that made it respectable. And what we've seen since is that um, people will use the uh, conflict in the Middle East, particularly any time Israel takes uh, measures to defend itself, as a way of uh, using barely disguised, thinly disguised attacks on Israel's right to defend itself as an attack on the Jewish community. And so what, in my view, there are three major things that we need to change. One is social media. And uh, gently, part of the issue goes back to America. So we've had problems in Golders Green before, where we had hate marches and various blogs were inciting people to march on Golders Green to, if you like, free the area of Jewish influence. We had difficulty dealing with that because the blog posts were hosted on American servers and the American freedom of speech rules are so strict and so sacrosanct it's very hard to deal with hate speech. Um, and that's one of the problems we have with social media companies. Because they're based in the States, it's very hard for the British government to get them to, if you like, um, step up and take up their responsibilities. Now, we are increasing regulation, but it's a problem. Because if many of our big social media companies refuse to comply, um, there's not much we can do. But what we're finding is certainly, um, I saw the footage of the 710 massacres uh, and I never want to see it again. But a lot of that footage is online. It's on the internet. It shouldn't be because it desensitizes people to beheadings, to using rape as a form of, uh, of um, you know, violence. And so when you complain to social media companies, they're very slow to take this footage down. I get sent some um, unpleasant messages and videos and photographs uh, and I complain to the social media companies and nothing happens. And so social media companies need to change the way they deal with complaints and they deal with this uh, awful footage. The second bit is that we do need to, if you like, I'm sounding rather old now, but if you're under 35, you get your news from social media. And there is a level of acceptance that if it's on social media, it must be true. So we also need to teach people that they need to check their facts just because it's on social media doesn't mean it's true. It can be distorted. It can be an opinion. So that level of critical thought needs to be reinstilled in a new generation. Um, and then the third part, if you like, of the jigsaw is visible deterrence of our police. Now, police in Finchley have been superb at supporting me, but I'm afraid the Met in the centre have been less than good, in my view that when we have footage of people who are being clearly anti-Semitic on the demonstrations in London, when you ask why there have been no arrests, I'm told, well, we take video footage 
and we arrest them at a later date because we don't want to create a riot. And I'm going, that's not good enough. If there's a riot, there'll only be one because you're the police. You deal with it. Arrest people on the spot so that other demonstrators can see if you break the law, there's a consequence. Not something down the line that might happen because half the demonstrators or most of them would never see that. They need to see a visible consequence. And so do the public. So if they're watching the, you know, the newsreels, if they're watching online, if they're seeing photographs in newspapers, they need to see people arrested on the spot. And that bit is also missing. So all three combined, I do believe we can turn the tide because the British public as a whole are not anti-Semitic. Um, the British public are incredibly kind and tolerant of everyone's freedom of religion. Uh, but we've got a very small and very noisy uh, minority that is allow being allowed uh, to get away with it. And we need to curtail that oxygen of social media and get the police to deal with it visibly and firmly. I think yeah. I, I'd like to just repeat that your third point and to understand why aren't the police arresting them? I mean, do you think they will change and start arresting them as it happens rather than waiting and doing it privately? So they do make arrests. I mean, actually, there certainly there are two women in court this week who had um, the paragliders emblem on, on their on their backpacks. So they were arrested at a later date and they, they're in court this week. So arrests are made. But the problem is, unless you follow the cases or look, go looking for it, and most of the public don't, I would, because I have an interest, but most members of the public don't see that. You know, most of the members of the public are not on Twitter. And I challenged the uh, commissioner of police and said, visible policing. He said, oh, well, we do publicise them on Twitter. And I'm going, not good enough, because I'm not on Twitter. Most of my most of my residents aren't on Twitter. They need to know someone's been arrested. They need to see someone's been arrested. So I think there's quite a lot of pressure on the police to change their tactics. I understand the worry. They don't want to cause a riot. But at the end of the day, there'll only be one riot because they're the police and they'll deal with it. And the next time someone tries to uh, have a demonstration, then maybe some of them were banned because of the problems that they've uh, caused previously. So I think it's time to get tough. Do you think, we, I mean, we have seen these immense demonstrations um, against Israel, against Zionism, um, against, after Jews. October, against Jews after October 7 in, in, in London. Um do you think the police would be capable to stop that if that would turn into yeah. a riot? Yeah, because most people wouldn't riot. And actually, the demonstrations are, are never as big as the media report. I mean, you know, I see them outside uh, my office in Parliament all the time. And, and the organisers always exaggerate uh, the numbers there. I mean, they have been quite large and very noisy. If someone was being arrested on the spot and a few people tried to kick off and cause a riot. I'm pretty sure that most of the demonstrators would melt away and only a few would seek to uh, cause a riot. But, you know, London is heavily policed uh, during these demonstrations and um, the police, I'm sure, would be able to handle it. But they, they need to. You know, it wouldn't be tolerated in France or Germany. Um, in some ways, we, we have what's called, you know, policing by consent. And sometimes that is a little bit too consensual. And sometimes mm -hmm. our police need to kind of uh, wade in a little bit faster and a little bit firmer. Um, 
Do you have suggestions for how the British government might de-escalate the current anti-Semitism? Well, some of that, we're putting quite a lot of money into a variety of measures. One is we are bringing forward legislation to regulate the social media companies. Um, on top of that, we're spending quite a lot of money on uh, boosting teaching in schools uh, so that we are able to address some of the root causes. Um, also, our universities are being put under significant, but they are independent of governments, um, but they're under a great deal of pressure um, to protect um, uh, Jewish students, but also to uh, stamp out uh, the ability of some student groups to intimidate uh, uh, Jewish groups, or just generally intimidate students full stop. And then alongside that, we've had a couple of worrying incidents where our employment tribunal, our employment courts, have found someone has been dismissed um, for uh, being anti-Zionist. Uh, and it was found that that was a protected characteristic, as we call it, under the Equality Act. Therefore, they couldn't be dismissed for being anti-Zionist. So we are looking at a, a variety of routes of tightening up the law so that there are consequences um, to being anti-Semitic, much more uh, severe consequences. Um, and we are going to the root cause in our schools and universities so that we can start teaching. Um, actually, check your facts. This is what anti-Semitism is. This is why it's wrong. And this is why a lot of the underlying, if you like, a lot of the propaganda is false. Uh, and so there's a lot of work going on, but it will be generational. This is not going to be a quick fix. Mm -hmm. Thank you. With our one or two minutes remaining, is there anything you would like to say that we haven't covered before we thank you so much for this interview? Well, there's two things. One is obviously lobby your American politicians. The freedom of speech rules are very important, but it they can be used as a, a somewhere to hide, where they allow people to spread lies and uh, anti-Semitism, and that needs to be looked at. How do we get the balance right? And also, I'd say broadly, uh, as I've said here in the UK, you know, the UK is still a warm and welcoming country. It is tolerant. We've got a small and vocal minority, and I don't often that gets skewed in overseas media and reporting what's going on in the UK. So I'd say to um, your your viewers and listeners that please don't believe the BBC. Uh, this is not the UK. The UK is still warm and welcoming and tolerant. I, I think that's very important as someone who does occasionally watch the BBC. I, I will definitely keep that in mind. We thank yeah. you so much for this interview. We really do. We thank our listeners. If people want to know more about my co-host, Evelyn Marcus, and myself, Phyllis Simbler-Miller, you can go to Never Again Is Now podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts to learn more. And as we end every episode, we say, please speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.